You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then he said to Moses, Come up to Yahweh, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of Yahweh and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that Yahweh has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to Yahweh. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Yahweh said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 577 of this podcast. Today is Monday, March 13th, 2023, and that was Exodus chapter 24, and we'll just stop right there. There's quite a lot to get into where it follows after here, but with regards to where that chapter ends, Moses up on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Let's just say 
a lot can happen in 40 days and 40 nights. A lot can happen. <laughs> uh, you'll see, if you haven't ever read Exodus, you'll see what I mean here as we continue on in coming episodes. When Moses comes back down from the mountain, there is a bit of um, disorder that has crept in. You know, how it started, how it's going, uh, one of those deals. But moving on, for right now, let's talk about a whole lot that's in the news. I don't want to downplay at all the importance of Exodus 24. I will loop us back around to ask, maybe, what can we learn from Exodus for our current situation? What insights can we perhaps glean from the Exodus narrative, particularly where we're at right now? But first, let's take a look at what's going on in the news. As you might know, Silicon Valley Bank got closed down, all of the assets seized last week. And that's a big deal. They're the 16th largest bank in the world. And they are where a whole lot of venture capitalist technology funds are stored or the earnings and the winnings from venture capitalist investments in big tech or in healthcare have been stored. And so for Silicon Valley Bank to go belly up is a big deal. It's not just any bank. It is Silicon Valley Bank. Think Technology HQ for the World Bank. So what's going to happen this morning? I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that it's going to be a bumpy ride. Janet Yellen, U.S. Treasury Secretary, said on Sunday, that is yesterday, that the federal government is going to do something in a timely way, and I quote, in a timely way, but they're not going to do bailouts like they did back in 2008. It was wildly unpopular. There was a lot of upset. The bailout thing doesn't work for everybody, right? If I get overextended and underwater and would need to declare bankruptcy, the federal government doesn't come in and just write off all of my debt and give me a whole big wheelbarrow full of cash. So why the banks, right? Why the banks? Janet Yellen has already said, we're not going to do that, but we're going to do something. Well, what are they going to do? We don't know. What are the markets going to respond like? And also, we don't know. But what we can say is that the government is scrambling here. Another prominent bank has been closed over the weekend. Its assets, I think, similarly taken by the federal government just, you know, in case, in case we need to liquidate those or what have you to get a return on whatever the funding of the shortfall is going to be. I mean, that's another oddity here with SVB is that all of the depositors have been told, you will get your money, okay? Don't worry. But we're not going to bail out the banks, but you're going to get your money. But the money's not there. But where's the money going to come from? Well, 170 plus billion dollars apparently will just be printed. I don't know how else they do it unless they're just lying, which they would do. And is any of this going to restore confidence in the soundness of the US dollar? When the soundness of American money has been undermined so systematically and for so long, 
is this going to make things better or is this going to make things worse? Can you trust the same people who got us into this mess who are not just the folks at these banks? They're the folks who are regulating and overseeing these banks and telling these banks what they can and cannot do, trying to manipulate all of the conditions to enact their policies, whether their policies are going to return uh, you know, more than what is put into them. That's dubious. Republicans would say no when the Democrats say yes. Conservatives like myself would say no when the progressives and the big government types and the folks who want socialism are going to say it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, either we'll win or everything will collapse and then we'll institute socialism. And uh, that is also winning. So it's a win-win for the big government types because if overregulation, tinkering, finagling, overspending money that they didn't have, printing it out of thin air, inflating the currency, driving up the interest rates, if all of that causes a crisis, well, then they can just cite the crisis for still more intervention or for a total overhaul. But who are the architects going to be or who are they right now? Because I don't think that the architects are just being picked, you know, from our standpoint in the moment of the crisis. The, the architects are picked in advance and the powers that be right now are going to say, well, we want to keep on having the folks who've been overseeing everything continue to oversee things. And I say, well, then you're probably going to get more of what you have gotten he who is faithful with a little bit will be faithful with much. He who is unfaithful with even a little bit, what little is in his possession is going to be taken away if there's any fairness, if there's any reasonableness, if there's any sense, which I'm not so sure that there is. I'm not sure there is. I'm podcasting like this, just little old me, a, a, a one-man operation here in Greeley, Colorado, before the sun is up, father of eight with one or two more on the way, homeschooling dad, sole breadwinner, working in oil and gas for going on 11 years. I'm sitting here podcasting and hoping that sound principles, truth and beauty and goodness begin again to inform how we elect our leadership, how we engage with the business of the city, the welfare of the city, how we engage with the welfare of our homes and our communities and our churches in light of God's word. That's why I read Exodus 24 at the top of this episode after all. But it's interesting to note just one month ago, less than one month ago, Forbes magazine was putting SVB on its annual list of America's best banks and its inaugural list of financial all-stars. That has aged very poorly. Life comes at you fast. Forbes 2023, America's Best Banks. Ooh, maybe, just maybe, we can't trust the folks who've been saying for years and decades, hey, we got this. We got this. No, don't worry, guys. Don't worry. Maybe we can't trust these folks. Just saying. Just saying. The creature from Jekyll Island, definitely worth you taking a look at if you want to understand more about the banking system. What the Federal Reserve is, it is neither a part of the federal government, nor is it really a reserve. It's a misnomer. It's a manipulated way of playing with language to get you to think that this is actually part of the government. It's not part of the government. It's a banking cartel. And it is 
not trustworthy. The Federal Reserve has not been trustworthy. They have not been a good steward of all our wealth, all our capital since their inception. They've not been. And if you say, well, things have gotten so much better from a technological standpoint, I say, is that because of the Federal Reserve or has the Federal Reserve been taking the cream off the top of all our milk for a hundred years? I would say after reading The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is a true story, true story. After reading that, I would say we are not all the better for it. They take the cream off the top and they live extraordinarily lavish, disconnected from reality lifestyles. Anything they want, they just cut a check. And if that devalues yours and my wages, yours and my savings, if that potentially crashes the stock market, well then, what's that to them? They can just print more money. And they can just tap into their ginormous pantries and refrigerators to grab another tub of ice cream. You know, the 65 flavors, as many genders as they think there are. They have that many varieties of ice cream in their giant, luxurious refrigerators. And meanwhile, you and I are put on something like rations. That, that is what I expect will probably be the case in the short term. And there's no reason, right, if, if past experience is any indication of what we can expect today and this week and in the coming weeks and months and years, there's no reason to suppose that they're not going to just double down on the same stupid that brought us here in the first place. But speaking of, Wolves are wolves. Uh, That might sound like a very simplistic statement, but I've been thinking about it and it's true. And wolves are wolves. So when you have uh, an article like I was reading the other day in the Billings Gazette by Brett French, February 26th, 2023, lone wolf trekked across Southwest Montana into Pryor Mountains before deadly decision. You do not have a surprised look on your face as you are reading it. If the webcam is watching me to try and gauge, you know, how I feel about the news stories so that they can write better news stories in the future, uh, I did not have a surprise look on my face, right? I'm not saying I think that the webcam is watching me, but these days, who knows, right? Who knows? In 2022, Brett writes, a male wolf that was captured and fitted with a GPS collar south of Dillon decided to take a long hike through some of Montana's most spectacular wild country. Traveling east, he trotted across the Madison, Gallatin, and Absaroka mountain ranges in southwest Montana. He visited Yellowstone National Park, one of the densest wolf populations in the lower 48 states, before climbing over the Beartooth Mountains, the highest in the state. Still searching, the wolf crossed the Clark's Fork Yellowstone River Valley and wandered into the Pryor Mountains. If the wolf had hitchhiked a ride in an automobile, the distance covered is close to 300 miles. What did we do before <clears throat> Google Maps? Uh, I'm sure that's what that was. That was a quick Google Maps. Uh, okay, that's how I'll write that sentence. But those miles, Brett continues, don't reflect the elevation gains and losses of climbing up and over the mountain ranges. I'm sure some of those miles do, actually. Uh, They also don't tally the rivers that course through the landscape, including the Madison, Gallatin, Yellowstone, and Clark's Fork of the Yellowstone. So here's what happened. Here's what happened. I won't spoil it. You can go check it out. I'll put a link in 
the description for this podcast episode if you want to read the article. This male wolf, fitted with the tracking collar, decided to kill some ranchers' livestock. He decided to kill some animals that belonged to a rancher. And you say, oh, well, that's awful, right? <clears throat> that's awful that the white man, probably a white man, although it doesn't say, could have been a Native American rancher for all we know. Could have been a black man. I mean, not likely <clears throat> from my experience growing up in Montana, my home state, traveling through Wyoming, not likely a black man, but I think Kanye West has a, a ranch in Wyoming. That could be that could be the case. Maybe it was Kanye West's ranch. We don't know. It's not stated. But you might be saying, oh, it's just awful that the white Europeans came here and fenced everything off and they're raising these cattle and this isn't the native habitat for these cattle that they're ranching and we should all be eating synthetic beef. And this innocent wolf is actually the victim. And I would just encourage you, if you feel that way, if you think that way at all, if you know somebody who does, Check out a interesting, enjoyable, quaint time capsule known as The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman. Written in 1846, the spring and summer of 1846, Francis Parkman, a Bostonian, lived with the Ogallala Sioux Indians for a while and jotted down what he observed. And some of what he observed, I think, if we knew, if more of us knew, we would say, oh my goodness, well, maybe the Indians, they weren't so at peace with nature as we've been led to believe in our day. You know, if, if the white colonizers and the Europeans would just go back to Europe where they belong, well, then everything would go back to the way that it ought to here, Right wild wolves and bison and elk and forests and fish and birds and all the rest living at peace with Native Americans. That's how God intended it or the Great Spirit intended it or what have you. What's interesting, what's remarkable, besides the frequent use of the word buxom, buxom, B-U-X-O-M, which I have never read a book with more uses of that word appearing. It was like once a chapter, he's describing this or that scene with women in it. And he throws out buxom as a descriptor. Uh, apparently women were buxom back then, or he noticed when they were buxom. But besides that, it is astounding to me how quickly and without apparent concern or hard feelings, or sadness, or remorse. Native Americans in the Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman would dispatch their dogs and, yes, puppies, just bop them over the head with a stone mallet and start cutting them up and throwing them into a stew. So if you're a dog person, just know that the Ogallala Sioux would have some recipes for you. I look at that and I think, you know what, that, <clears throat> this whole narrative is busted. The Native Americans, they were just people, right? They were just people. They were people who were out there. They had a certain worldview. They had a certain way of life and a certain culture and language and history. And yes, all of that is very interesting. I'm fascinated, fascinated by it. But they weren't perfect 
people and they killed and ate their dogs and their puppies, right? Can you imagine killing and eating a puppy? You say, oh man, this puppy looks delicious, right? They did. They did it all the time. They're like, "Mm, you know what's uh, good eats? Puppies. Puppies are good eats. They make a great soup. Want some? And you say, oh no. And then you read this article in the Billings Gazette about some poor wolf who made a bad life choice or else we've all made bad life choices. You know, read to the end. We all make bad life choices here as white Europeans. And if more of us would just move into the cities and vote Democrat, then the wolves wouldn't be bothered so much by ranchers, those mean, evil, nasty ranchers who are raising beef for us fat, wealthy Americans to eat. And it's just ridiculous. It's absurd. You know, pick up a book, pick up a book like The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman and see him just casually observing. Like, this is what happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then we smoked the pipe, and then this guy danced around the camp chanting before he led a pack of warriors to go against a rival tribe that had killed his brother last year, and he wasn't going to have it anymore. His brother can't rest because the Snake Indians killed his brother last year. And here's a story about catching some Snake Indians once upon a time and straight up murdering one and then torturing another one to death without any apparent remorse, any sadness, any guilty feelings. It was not all sunshines and rainbows and you know, tiptoeing through the tulips before the white man got here. It just wasn't. It just wasn't. But animals are animals. And that's the point. Wolves are wolves. You put a wolf out there and you put a tracking collar on it. That tracking collar is not protecting anybody's livestock, anybody's pet dog or cat or cow. You know, it's not protecting anybody's small child as they're just playing out in the field back behind the cabin or whatever. The tracking collar is just to observe, like it's National Geographic. And the wolf did what a wolf is going to do. The wolf gets hungry and the wolf is going to kill what it can eat, just like people, just like people kill and eat the animals like wolves. They will dispatch what they think is either food or a threat. And that's what it is. You know, interestingly, another potential upset to some of our assumptions, some things that we've been told that might not be so, but they're repeated so often that we just assume like, oh yeah, that's that's a thing, right? Cowboystatedaily.com has a really fun article published March 7th under the news slash wildlife section written by Mark Heinz, the outdoors reporter about how a British researcher and a Wyoming rancher are trying to prove that antelope, and by antelope, I mean pronghorn, which are not technically antelope. They're not deer. They're not antelope. They're in a class all by themselves. Pronghorn in Wyoming actually, I think, still do outnumber people. So just to give you some idea, you know, people who think that the world is overpopulated and it's too full, go to Wyoming sometime. There are more pronghorn than there are people. Fun fact. But cheetahs, right? Cheetahs are faster. Pronghorn are fast. Cheetahs are faster. 
or so we've been told. And this researcher and this rancher want to settle that question. And they think, actually, from looking at tracking data for cheetah and for pronghorn, that it might be the case that pronghorn are faster. Maybe cheetah are not as fast as we've been told. Maybe pronghorn are faster than we've been told. And what would that do to our conception of North America, North American prestige, prestige of the Rocky Mountains region in particular, Wyoming in particular, where there are so many pronghorn, if the fastest land animal is actually, in fact, found in North America, is actually found in the prairies of Wyoming. They're going to figure it out. But just so you know, that's a thing. That's a possibility that we've been told something that just isn't so. For years, I've read, anytime I see something about pronghorn, I have seen that over time, you know, they can run for miles. They are faster. They have more endurance than cheetah. But cheetah can run faster for short bursts. It might not be so. It might not be so. We'll see. But some other interesting news regarding Africa. An African delegation bucked the UN, the United Nations, by screening the Daily Wire's What is a Woman in honor of a women's conference last Friday. The Nigerian mission to the UN specifically defied the left-wing Commission on the Status of Women, New York, and delegates from multiple African countries were in attendance, including Uganda, Malawi, and Cameroon. A delegate from Suriname in South America also attended, quote, the movie was very informative, end quote, said Peace Regis Mutuotsu, Ugandan State Minister for Gender, Labor, and Social Development. Quote, the people whose gender has been arranged can never lead a happy life, no matter how much they pretend, because gender is biological and not ideological, end quote. And here again, we find that perhaps some things that we have been told to just accept here in recent years are hogwash, nonsense, not true, absolutely false and fictitious. And I love this, right? I, I love that the UN and the mainstream media and Democrats are all put in such a quandary, potentially, by how much are they going to try and correct or rebuke or lecture or shout down delegates from African nations at the UN when they want to watch what is a woman, when they agree with it, when they say, ah, this is really great. This is really well done. If you've seen the documentary, you know, if you haven't seen, you should go check it out and you'll find out. Matt Walsh travels to Africa and talks with, I think they're the Maasai people, and he asks them some of these questions about where they stand on gender. Do you have any transgendered people who have the anatomy of a man, but they identify as a woman? Do you have anybody like that? And they laugh and they say, no, no, we don't. You know, if we did have somebody like that around, we would say they are sick. They are unhealthy. There's something wrong with them. They weren't raised right. They have a bad spirit. They have something wrong, right? And we we definitely wouldn't affirm that. We would tell them, no, you're a boy. You're a man. You're not a girl. You're not a woman. You are a man. Men are men. Women are women. Matt Walsh is like, well, how do you know, right? How do you know? How do you know 
who's a man? And they're like, well, um, <laughs> they, they laugh uncomfortably and they're just kind of like, well, if, uh, if the person has a penis, you know, then, then they're a man. And if they don't, if, if they have a vagina, well, then they're a woman. And that's pretty easy. Next question. You know, but here in the United States of America, thanks to public education, thanks to a very sick mainstream culture, a lot of us think that is a hateful thing to say. It's not a hateful thing to say. To argue with it is an extraordinarily foolish and depraved condemnation of where we're at. It's an indictment on the state of American public education, the state of American culture these days, that this is a debate. This should not be a debate. This is a stupid thing to argue about, but it's not really actually about gender, first and foremost. First and foremost, this is finding fault with God. First and foremost, this is a rebellion against God's authority, his created order. This is an act of the will and a kind of idolatry, really, truly. This is demonic, not just, well, that's one way to live your life. No, this is demonic. Demons, I believe, are alive. That's one way to live your life too, right? Satan, I believe, is alive. I think he's an actual being created by God with the capacity to not just fall, but to rebel and to lead others in rebellion. We and the angels alike, made with the capacity to choose who we will serve, whether Yahweh God, who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them, or ourselves, whether we will try and put our throne above the most high gods, sit in judgment over him. That's one way to live your life too. But it comes to a bad end. The end of that is destruction. So take heed, take heed, take care. Somebody who should take heed is a certain Oklahoma state representative. I won't tell you which political party she belongs to or subscribes to, but here is cut one. You go ahead and take a listen. See if you can guess, right? See if you can guess who this gal identifies as, as far as Republican affiliation, Democrat affiliation, independent. Here's cut one. Take a listen. That's uh, very uh, disturbing, to say the least, when we have, again, a state superintendent who does not want to have anything to do with diversity, equity, inclusion. DEI is in deity. Diversity, equity, inclusion is God. Thank you for your debate. Okay. <clears throat> what do you think? What do, what do you think? Let's, let's pretend this is Jeopardy and just go ahead and write down your answer. Whether you suppose this female voice that I just played that audio clip of is a Republican or a Democrat. All right. What did you write down? If you wrote down Democrat, then you are correct. Oklahoma State Representative and Democrat Regina Goodwin is the voice there. And yes, you did hear that right. DEI should be understood by us as deity, which is to say that this is the golden calf, which is to say that 
it doesn't really matter to the woke folk or to the social justice warriors or to the folks on the radical left. And the Democrat Party doesn't really care that this is a god of their own making because that actually is a selling point to them. It's a god of their own making, which is to say that they are in control of it, which is to say that really they are as God. Instead of being made in God's image, now they'll make a God in their own image and they'll worship that God because really, truly, they aspire to be in authority over the Most High God. You see how that works? DEI is not an improvement. It's not justice new and improved. It's not double plus good, except in an Orwellian or Huxleyan sense. It is not justice new and improved. It's not truth new and improved. It's an injustice and it's an untruth. And it's ugly to say that you've got a superintendent and that's what she's upset about. She's very offended that Oklahoma has a public school superintendent who is not going to implement DEI policies in his school district, if he has anything to say about it. She is not just disagreeing with that. She's not just saying, well, that's one way to live your life. No, no. She says the quiet part out loud. This is blasphemy. You are being irreverent to our new religion, our golden calf. You will bow down. When the music plays, you will bow down to the golden statue of our king. And DEI is king and God to the woke folk. We have to understand that that is the basis for this conflict. This is primarily, first and foremost, a question of authority. Who has it? Where does it come from? How is it established? If the denial is when Christians in particular say, God rules and reigns, they say, oh, no, you can't say that. You can't say that. But then you've got the or else considered. And the or else is that DEI is God. That's the new religion. And you will all worship at the altar or else. We have to understand that this is inherently a religious conflict. This is a spiritual conflict. This is not just a debate about economic policy. It's not just a debate about who you should hire based on qualifications. First and foremost, fundamentally, this gets at the created order. Not that I need to be at the top of the pyramid, and that's really what I'm arguing for as a straight white man. No, 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 no. God is God. We should worship him alone. We should trust him. We should fear him. We should love him. We should serve him. We should put our hope in him, not in the woke stuff, not in the woke stuff. Speaking of justice and the lack thereof, I'm going to play cut two here. This is a video that has just recently resurfaced of the guy known as the QAnon shaman at the Capitol on January 6th, a day that will forever live in infamy, trying to encourage the protesters, his fellow protesters, to just go home. I'm going to play this clip. Thank you to Nat the Bee for posting it. NTB staff published this March 10th. That would be this past Friday. 
This is a censored video re-emerging of Jacob Chansley, aka the QAnon shaman, telling protesters to go home and remain peaceful. Take a listen. Outside the building saying, hey, everybody, Donald Trump says to go home. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can watch the fuller video. But consider that audio I just played for you in parallel with the recently released footage of police, Capitol Police, escorting the QAnon shaman around inside the Capitol building, actually escorting him to the chambers where he then stood behind the podium, got his photo op. That was the photo op to try and portray conservative Americans, Trump voters, anyone concerned about election fraud in 2020 as dangerous, unhinged, unstable, seditious, treasonous, this guy, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what his deal is, but I suspect he was just a little carried away, overly enthusiastic. This guy is not the face of conservative America. He's not. He's not. That he was selectively edited into the narrative as the bogeyman. This is what all Trump voters are like. This is what all Republicans are like. This is what all of flyover America is like. This is why these people can't be trusted with power. This is why we can't vote them into office. This is why they can't be trusted to sit on school boards and in the legislatures and on city councils. This is why they can't be trusted to have social media. This guy was trying to tell the protesters, hey, guys, stay peaceful, stay calm. Let's all go home. Trump wants us to go home. Okay. Why wasn't this footage shown to us earlier? Because a certain narrative was preferred very much like when the Reichstag fire happened, when the Nazis wanted to consolidate their power in Germany. There was a fire at the Reichstag, this very important historic building in Berlin. And who was blamed for that fire? Everybody the Nazis didn't like. Everybody that they wanted to drive from the public square, drive from government, 
everyone they wanted to go after, and they wanted a blank check to be able to go after them. Hey, look, these guys are dangerous insurrectionists, anarchists. Let's go after them, round them all up, and put them in camps or shoot them, put them in mass graves. Whoever started the fire, it was very useful to promote a certain narrative about it to go after political opponents. Think also of Nero in ancient Rome. You know, there are lots of folks from when the fire happened in Rome to the present who have said, well, it was too convenient. It was too convenient. I mean, put aside that he blamed the fire on the Christians, this dangerous sect of Christ followers, and then initiated a persecution of Christians on the basis that, uh, see, these people are so dangerous. We've got to get them out of here. We've got to eliminate them. Put aside that for a moment. Put aside the question of who started the fire. He wanted to rebuild that area, that neighborhood, after his own imagination. However he wanted to rebuild it, he wanted to rebuild it. He didn't like the way things looked. He thought, oh, this, you know, I want to knock out that wall and expand this and knock down that building and put something else there. And I want to design everything and I'm going to leave my mark. I'm going to prove to everybody what a great artist and architect and emperor I am. Whoever started the fire, although lots of folks then and up to the present, wondered if Nero was the one who started the fire. The point is not who started the fire. The point is, how was that fire exploited from an optics standpoint to go after people Nero didn't like and to get what Nero wanted? How was the burning of the Reichstag leveraged to go after people that the Nazis didn't like and to get what the Nazis wanted? How has January 6th been exploited by the left, by the Democrats, to go after the people that they don't like, for them to get what they want? These things are, I would say, proof of what Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, that there is no new thing under the sun. But DEI would say, you know what? White people have had it pretty good for a long time. Americans have had it pretty good for a long time. And in the name of social justice, we need to silence conservatives. America's not worth protecting, conserving. Let it burn, right? The sooner the better. Meanwhile, interestingly, I I refer you back to the African delegation, several delegates from several African nations being very interested in watching Matt Walsh's documentary, the Daily Wire's documentary, What is a Woman?, and saying, hey, this is really good stuff. You know, what if it turned out that there are people all over the world who don't want to see conservative Americans censored, driven from public squares, driven from the public debate, driven from positions of authority and influence? What if there are people all over the world who are hoping and praying that America endures because they're looking at the alternatives. They're looking at China eating their lunch if America is wiped off the map. Do we care about those folks? Do we care about those people who are pulling for us, who are hoping and praying that American Christians in particular will rediscover their rich heritage 2,000 years from Augustine to Luther to Samuel Rutherford, to the Founding Fathers, 
to the present, are they hoping that American Christians rediscover, dust off our Bibles and our church history and get back in there? I think so. Not all. China certainly doesn't want to see that. Putin, maybe, maybe, maybe not. But we should consider the ripple effects of allowing America to be burned down, allowing America to be hijacked in such a way that we throw our allies around the world to the wolves. Wolves are going to do what wolves do. What are we going to do? Are we going to act like hirelings or are we going to take seriously our responsibility? Are we going to bury our talents in a field or are we going to invest them? Because that's why the master gave them to us in the first place, after all. I want you to consider another story here. This one, speaking of DEI again, Stanford Law students mock, shout down, federal judge. Judge says DEI Dean set him up. This one reported on by Michelle Blood over at theblaze.com, March 11th. That would be Saturday. She writes, Stanford Law students allegedly working with the university's diversity, equity, and inclusion associate dean shouted down a judge delivering an invited address Thursday, National Review's Ed Whelan and other outlets reported, quote, you've invited me here and I'm being heckled nonstop, Fifth Circuit Judge Stuart Kyle Duncan says in a video captured during the event, quote, and I'm just asking for an administrator, end quote. The remainder of his sentence cannot be heard over students' shouting. I'm going to go ahead and play another clip here. This one will be cut three of this exchange. We won't play the whole clip. There's a long clip. I'll put the link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go read the fuller write-up at The Blaze. You can watch the full video if you so choose. But here is cut three from Stanford's recent debacle. Take a listen. just point out, she should be uncomfortable. She should be uncomfortable because what she's doing is shameful. 
what she's doing is shameful. You can hear her. Uh, that is the associate dean of DEI get up to the podium. This judge had been standing at the podium. She asks to deliver some remarks. She gives a speech. So he is there to speak at an event that he's been invited to for the local chapter of the Federalist Society. He's a Trump appointee, federal judge for the Fifth Circuit, and she doesn't want him to speak. And the protesters don't want him to speak. And you can hear these little peanut gallery contributions in the background about your racism is showing, right? Because she's a woman of color. He's a white man. His just even disagreeing with her and telling her she's wrong is racism to their way of thinking, because this is Marxism. You know, if I had played the Jeopardy theme music or thinking music again for you and asked you, okay, do you want to guess, just take a wild guess whether this judge was appointed by a Republican or a Democrat. I wasn't going to do that to you again, but if I had odds are high, you would have guessed right that this is someone who was appointed by a Republican president. And this is Again, no new thing under the sun. The Nazis did it too. They would go into speaking events for rival political parties, and they would disrupt. Their brown shirts would rough people up, intimidate, harass, shout them down, take over, and generally bully and terrorize anybody who wanted to say something different than what the Nazis wanted. Tom Wolfe has got a couple of books you should check out if you want to know the long sorted history of this over the past several decades in the U.S. Radical Chic is one you should read. It's not long. It's very, very accessible, very well-written, very sarcastic and sardonic and amusing. He writes it in such a way as to praise these things, but really he's criticizing and condemning them as they ought to be condemned. Mao Maoing the Flat Catchers, also, Radical Chic and Mao Maoing the Flat Catchers, two books you should read. And you can see this is textbook leftist activism, what's being done here at Stanford. And I'll say, again, I'm going to beat this drum. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why you should homeschool. This is why I'm not sold on higher education, because this is predominant increasingly. You know, my son, my oldest son, I think was really discouraged last week after going to general psychology at Ames here in Greeley. And his normal professor was out. He needed to have some kind of a medical procedure done or something like that. But they had a stand-in who was a substitute professor. And she wanted to talk with them about alcohol abuse substance abuse. And she was talking about alcohol and how alcohol makes men more aggressive and it makes them more likely to commit violence, violent acts and how the most violent day of the year, the most domestic violence uh, incidents of any day of the year in America happen on Super Bowl Sunday. And I don't know if that, that I don't know if that's true, but that was the claim. And my son, my oldest son, he engaged with her a bit, and he's like, "Well, wait, you know, 
does alcohol make men more violent or more aggressive or are men just more aggressive and the alcohol lowers their inhibitions and brings that out in a more overt, obvious way? You know, and so they had some back and forth and it sounds like she was a bit defensive and didn't want to tell him, no, you can't ask that question. You can't ask these questions. She didn't want to say that, but then she also bristled a bit at his questioning and proposing some alternative ways to interpret the evidence. You know, for instance, on the Super Bowl question, is that when the most calls about domestic violence happen or violent altercations between people happen because of alcohol, because people don't drink alcohol the rest of the year like they do on Super Bowl Sunday. Could that be a contributing factor? Sure. Also, could it be because they're all amped up? These men who are watching the Super Bowl, they might have put money on the game for one team or the other. This is the biggest game of the year for football fans, and they're invested emotionally in their team winning, the other team not winning. Could it possibly be that a whole country is cheering these dozens and dozens of men who are being aggressive on the field and the winners are going to be even more rich and famous than they already are, more celebrated for being aggressive. And so you've got men watching at home feeling like they're with that. It resonates with something inside them more than it would resonate with women. Is that possibly a thing? You know, these are very reasonable kinds of questions to introduce, but I am very disturbed by the prospect that my son's going into higher education would be treated even one-tenth as disrespectfully, as contemptuously as this federal judge. You know, this guy, this federal judge, Judge Duncan, he's not some 15-year-old homeschooled student who is years ahead of most of his classmates. You know, this guy, he's been through the education system. He's been practicing law and acting as a judge and appointed to a federal judiciary. And he's there to talk with the Federalist Society, presumably about conservative judicial philosophy, conservative legal theory. And what they're having is not a debate when the protesters show up or when the associate dean of DEI shows up. What they're having is a hate fest. What they're having is a purge, an ideological purge, not just for their campus, for everybody on their campus to feel safe. No, 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 I don't buy that. This is to harass your enemy because you see this guy and everybody he came to speak to and address and everybody those folks represent in America as your enemies. And here's your opportunity to play the victim even as you are being an atrocious bully and brat. But you can say, oh, well, I don't know about that. I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Nobody's perfect. That is an injustice. This is no way to have a public debate, which it wasn't supposed to even be a public debate. He was going to deliver remarks. He was invited to deliver remarks, and he couldn't because he was being shouted down and harassed. And the other people who 
had come to hear him couldn't hear his prepared remarks because he was being shouted down and harassed publicly. And not just for the sake of Stanford, but for the sake of higher education across the U.S., so that everybody who watches and listens takes note. Because this is, at root, a spiritual conflict. This is a religious conflict. Marxism, read Richard Wormbrand's Karl Marx and the Satanic Roots of Communism, Marxism is at root satanic. Not for no reason are they always against the Christians, those Marxists, those communists. Not for no reason. They see the message of Christianity, Christian faith and testimony, as diametrically opposed, not because the Christians are the troublemakers, but because the Marxists are, but they flip the script. Then they say, oh, I'm really uncomfortable. I don't feel safe. You know what? You shouldn't feel safe because what you're doing is evil and wicked. You should feel uncomfortable because what you're doing is shameful. You know, go back to Exodus chapter 24 for a moment. The covenant confirmed. The fear of God is all throughout this chapter. And yet the very last verse in chapter 24 is Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And read on. You don't have to wait. You can go ahead and read ahead. You know, It'll be a, a, a few episodes, maybe a week or two before we get to the part with the golden calf. But the golden calf is fashioned for Israel to go whoring after in a religious sense, in a spiritual sense, while Moses is receiving the law from God on the mountain. And you can say, well, you know, Moses isn't perfect either, right? Who is Moses to judge? Moses is appointed to judge if God says, right? So first and foremost, to question whether Moses has any right to judge, whether he's perfect either, no, no. Nope. Let's go back. Let's go upstream. Who sent Moses? Who called Moses? That's who you really are having a conflict with here. If you're challenging Moses, if you're saying, oh, Moses, he's not any better than the people of Israel making the golden calf. God forbid we do that with these current contemporary issues. And we say, the Christians who are very concerned about their country, their countrymen, their neighbors, their family, their friends, their livelihood, their liberty. They're no better than the left. It's all the same. Nobody's perfect. No, 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 no. That is an injustice. How would it be if anytime you have somebody commit a crime and you call the police, the police show up and they're like, okay, what happened? And the person who just got mugged is like, well, this guy was trying to mug me and he was beating me across the face with his fists and trying to take my wallet. And I told him, no, it's my wallet. It's not your wallet. You can't have it. I need this money. And how would it be if the cop started asking, okay, yeah, but have you ever stolen anything, even a small thing? What does that have to do with anything? What does that have to do with it? Well, you know, I mean, you look like you're better dressed than the guy who was mugging you. I mean, let's let's check both of you to see how much money you have. He has less money than you do. You should take half of your money and give it to him so that you guys have the same amount because you're not perfect either, you know. That's how communists reason. That's how the left reasons. Well, you know, this guy who was mugging you. He had a hard upbringing. He didn't have all the advantages that you did. His parents didn't tell him that they loved him enough. He didn't have a good education. 
he lived in a rough part of town. You know, you you live in a nice house and drive a decent car and got a good education. Yeah, you just, I'm going to let you both off with a warning. No, 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 no. That's not okay. That's not okay. And yet that's what's being pushed. That is what's being pushed. And if the criminals object to being called criminals, increasingly the law abiding are being told, well, you don't get any credit for abiding by the law. We're going to treat you all like criminals. And that is to say, we're going to let the criminals go free. We're going to say all is forgiven, but it's peace, peace when there is no peace. It's satanic. It is satanic. Ronald Reagan understood that. Richard Wormbrand understood that. We need to understand that. And this is not just state legislatures and Stanford College, Stanford University, whatever. Ben Zeisloft published a piece last week at the Daily Wire. Dems block Jordan Peterson from testifying at Senate hearing. Furious Republicans walk out. Republicans walked out of a Senate hearing about AI on Wednesday after their Democratic counterparts blocked Daily Wire Plus host Dr. Jordan B. Peterson from testifying. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, who was serving as the body's senior Republican in the absence of ranking member Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, said during his opening statement that Chairman Gary Peters, Democrat from Michigan, had refused to allow Peterson to appear virtually. Quote, for whatever reason, even though we have the technology here, the chairman said he couldn't make it possible for him to appear remotely. Behind the scenes over the weekend, there were other reasons supplied, Johnson commented. That was all a ruse. It was a pretext for not allowing Dr. Peterson to testify, and I really cannot guess why. Some kind of ideological reason. You don't, you don't have to guess why. You know why. It is ideological. And if this is a hint of what AI will help the Democrats and the leftists to do, scaled up to conservatives, what is the point of pursuing credentials exactly? What stock should we put in pursuing credentials? It doesn't matter how much education, how much authority. The more you have, if you are a conservative, the more the left will hate you. So what's the point? And if the moderate folks in between, if the independent folks in between are just like, well, we can't tell. All we know is that she's uncomfortable and make it stop. Mom, dad, stop fighting. Then we're going to get more of this we are going to get more, and it's going to get worse. Now, a little bit of happy news, hopeful news. Former Democrat Party icon apologizes to conservatives. Lauds release of January 6th footage. Here's another piece from Michelle Blood over at theblaze.com. From March 11th, feminist author Naomi Wolf offered a formal apology to conservatives who put America first after reviewing newly released footage of the January 6th, 2021 Capitol riot. Quote, Peaceful Republicans and conservatives as a whole have been demonized by the story told by Democrats in leadership of what happened that day, Wolf said in a lengthy post on Substack Thursday. Quote, Republicans, conservatives, I am sorry. I also believed wholesale so much else that has since turned out not to be as I was told it was by NPR, MSNBC, and the New York Times, end quote. This is good news. This is a happy note. Because I think it demonstrates that if the evidence is allowed to come forward, and this is the reason why the evidence has been suppressed, if the, if the evidence is allowed to come forward and be presented, there are people who will be persuaded by it. Similarly, if conservatives are allowed to make their case 
and state their cause and explain their principles, they will persuade people by the force of their arguments, by the substance of their positions. Why else is the left trying so hard to shout them down and shut them up? They say, oh, this doesn't feel safe. No, it doesn't feel safe to your position, right? It doesn't feel safe to your cause because your cause is unjust. You know, imagine if that were, at the end of the day, the excuse the Democrats give for suppressing the footage from January 6th. If they said, well, that footage just makes us feel unsafe. I mean, that's basically what they've said from the standpoint of people could review this footage and then plan an even worse attack than January 6th, an even worse attack on our democracy. For the interest of security, we can't show the footage. It's like, you know, I think the only thing that's unsafe here is your narrative. Your narrative is in peril. Your narrative is in danger. That's what you're trying to protect. The emperor has no clothes. Has it been a minute since you read that story from our childhood? The emperor has no clothes. At a certain point, the boy who cries wolf stops getting a response from the people, and they stop showing up because they've been lied to so many times. And the wolf is a wolf, is a wolf, is a wolf. The wolf is going to do what wolves do. The people of the town are going to do what the people of the town do. Are we in a frame of mind to be able to say before the wolf eats the little boy, who thinks it's just great fun to mock everyone, laugh at everyone, are we in a frame of mind to say, hey, hold on a second, wolves do exist, but this kid's a liar and he should be taken back behind the woodshed (laughs) for his sake as much as for ours. You know, the Silicon Valley bank business Who can make this up that you have big tech and the healthcare system's money all bound up in this bank that Forbes less than a month ago was saying is one of the best banks, one of the most prestigious banks in America, if not the world, having its assets seized, being closed down by the federal government. All the while, they're telling us two things at the same time. They're talking out of both sides of their mouth. One, our financial system is strong, right? Hey, guys, don't panic. Don't panic, okay? Listen, 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 listen. It's fine. It's fine. This is fine. It's okay. It's all right. It's okay. But also telling us that they need to take drastic measures to avoid a crisis of confidence. You know, once that toothpaste has been squeezed out of the tube, which it has with SVB collapsing here, I think. There's no getting around people who have their money invested other places taking a hard look over the weekend at, hey, wait a second, was my bank doing what SVB was doing? Have have all these banks been doing it? You know, Forbes thought SVB was so great. Either A, SVB was doing what everybody else was doing, just doing it better, which is to say, If SVB was one of the best banks and this just happened to them, well, then how much worse are all the other banks? Or scenario B, option B, explanation B, Forbes really wasn't paying any kind of close attention and they just 
put these things out there. They just say, oh yeah, it's a great bank. It's a great bank. Yeah, but did you look at it? Did you look at the fundamentals? Like, what's that predicated on? What's that based on? How good their ESG scores are? How much money is said to be in them, even though the money's not really there? And that's why you have bank runs, because the money is not actually there when people decide to start pulling the money out. On what basis was SVB such a great bank? And then it's not. And then it collapses. Hey, guys, everything's fine. Also, oh, just by the way, we could potentially have a total collapse. And so we're going to take drastic measures. We're going to intervene in a big way here. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Elon Musk, because we've got to talk about Elon Musk in every episode, I think. He said he was open to the idea of buying SVB. Of course, the Biden administration and the regulators are not going to let that happen. I got a notification shortly before I started recording this morning that HSBC might, they might buy Silicon Valley Bank for $1 or some crazy thing. It's funny money. It's all ones and zeros to these people. You know, one final thought here before we wrap up and adjourn for this episode. I got a box or two of sentimental items delivered to me last week, actually on Friday, right on time for this whole news about Silicon Valley Bank. And these two boxes of sentimental items are part of my inheritance from my Renew grandparents, my mother's parents, having passed away. My grandpa passed back in, what was it, 2014, 2015? I don't quite recall. Several, several years ago. My grandmother, she passed back in 2020. My cousin, Michael Hernandez, did a fantastic job as executor of the estate, distributing the proceeds from the sale of properties, closing of accounts, cashing in of policies and such and such. Also did a fantastic job compiling all of the photographs, getting those scanned in, cataloged, sending out links to my cousins and I and my brother. Did a fantastic job of cataloging the sentimental items and then setting up a ranked choice voting system for us to request some of those items. One of the items I requested was a portrait of my great-grandfather McFarland, Donald Staley McFarland. And I don't know when this portrait was taken. I do know that he passed away in 1944. He was born 1892. His father was George G. McFarland very wealthy, very influential man in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, himself a son of George Fisher McFarland. So my great-grandfather was the grandson of that McFarland who led the school teachers regiment, the 151st Pennsylvania Volunteers at the Battle of Gettysburg, saving the First Corps, according to Abner Doubleday, consequently saving the Army of the Potomac, consequently saving the Union cause, I think you could say. But Donald Steely, McFarland, had a lot of money invested in the stock market when the crash of 1929 happened. And he lost everything, or near enough. 
And so my grandmother and her sisters and their brother, Don Jr., they grew up poor. They didn't have shoes that fit, good socks and pajamas and decent clothes, decent coats in the winter. And life was hard. They went from what would have been, I think, a very comfortable living and lifestyle to having nothing and really needing to depend on the generosity of my great-grandfather's second wife's family. But why I tell you this story is not knowing whether this is going to be another Great Depression or like the Wall Street crash of 1929, not knowing that, not predicting that. I note that when I was growing up, born 1986, which was just a year shy. I wasn't even quite a year old, almost. I was, it was just you know two weeks shy of one year old when Black Monday, October 19th, 1987 happened. Uh, my grandmother, Renew, Donald Steely's daughter, would send us boxes of shoes and socks and pants and shirts and books and coats, educational toys and supplemental materials. See, my grandmother, Renew, she was a public school teacher for 30 years in Milton, Florida, taught science and math, didn't send her children to the public schools past a certain age, ended up sending them to Pensacola Christian instead. But she remembered being a little girl who didn't have adequate clothing and was embarrassed about it. And when she retired from teaching, and my grandfather, who was fully disabled, a World War II vet, when she had his pension, her pension uh, coming in every month, she would go over and shop the sales at the mall. She would go to JCPenney's and Sears and Kohl's and the commissary, and she would buy at a huge discount clothes, shoes, books, movies. Our first TV when I was a kid, our first TV that I remember that had a VCR built into it was a present from her. My Super Nintendo, when I turned 10 years old, that was a present from her. A lot of the VHS tapes that my brother and I would watch again and again, like the Ten Commandments, like Ben-Hur, those were presents from her. My point is this, whatever happens in the coming days, weeks, months, years, life will go on if God decides to continue sustaining us. And so that should be our hope and our prayer that he would prosper the work of our hands, that he would give us wisdom, that we would be good stewards of what we have, that we would learn to be frugal and to take care of not just things, but to take care of the people we're responsible for and responsible to God to provide for and to protect. Because these things, they're all just ones and zeros. Don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Instead, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Use your wealth here on earth to store up treasures in heaven. Do that. And then whatever happens with the banks, the stock market, the housing market, the educational system, our political system, 
If you are found faithful, then you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your place of rest. That's the goal. That's the big idea. That's winning. And if you can encourage as many others around you to also pursue that, that's winning. That's what we're called to in Christ. That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. been listening to the garrett ashley mullet show on anchor fm for more content like what you just heard subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts google podcasts or spotify also check out the garrett to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published as always you can reach me with any comments questions complaints objections or insights at garrett at protonmail.com